my gosh, that was absolutely incredible. I got to tell you, I was sitting here in a relatively almost completely empty worship center getting ready to come up and talk to you all about the Word and, you know, just feeling a little bit down even though we're singing great songs because it's empty and, uh, you know, all I got is Neil. And uh, other than that, I'm, I'm missing all of you so tremendously and I was feeling that and then the virtual choir came on. And I got to tell you, I'd forgotten about that. I, I've been so dialed into what we're going to talk about today that, that I'd forgotten that I told you Thursday we're going to have the virtual choir. And, and something happened in those last two songs that just buoyed my spirit. The songs and just seeing those 80 people, you know, many of which I know, most of them I like, uh, all of them that I love. And, uh, and, and, and it just reminded me that we're going to be back together soon. And I hope for you, that was encouraging as well. It's amazing what we can do with technology. And, and again, just a wonderful time of worship, even though we're having to do so at a relative distance. Now, I, here's what I want to say before I pray, because we have a lot to cover in the Word today. Uh, you know, we all know this. These are unprecedented times that we're living in right now. I mean, truly unprecedented times. I was thinking about it this week. If you had told me back in 1982 when I became an adult, I was 18 years old in 1982. I just accepted Jesus. I'm going off to college. In four years, I'd be going to seminary, called to be a pastor. If you had told me in 1982 that I would live through a pandemic, uh, the likes of which we hadn't seen since 1918, I would have said you're crazy. If you had told me in 1982 that our culture would shift in such a dramatic way, I was just learning what, what modernism was back in 82, our modern world, but it would actually shift to a post-modern world, complete with a disregard of universal and absolute truth and an erosion of morality, the likes of which we have not seen in hundreds of years, I would have said you're crazy. In fact, even during this time, people said to me, you know, in 10 years, culture will be like this. I said, no, it won't, and it has. If you had told me in 1982 that, that, that in the midst of all of this, a pandemic and, and our postmodern culture, that we'd also have a technological revolution in which, you know, what I used to see on, on Star Trek, you know, where they could t talk into their little wristwatch to each other, I would have said, no way, and, and yet I can, I can do that now, and I can talk to you all uh, through a digital medium. I, I, I tell you, these are unprecedented times. Why do I say that? Well, if ever there was a need for what we're going to talk about today, I've entitled the message Jesus, but, but it actually could be entitled Godliness, because you'll see there's a link between the two. If there was ever a need for talking about godliness as we continue our 316 series, now is the time. Truly, this could be a watershed moment for many of us in our church, and so I'm glad that you have joined us this weekend. So, with that tall deliverable laid out, let's now pray and ask God to do what only he can do. Father... I do thank you for the church, and I thank you that, as we talked about this past week in my address to our church here, Lord, that you have promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, uh, but that you will continue, continue to always support and work through your church until the return of Jesus. And so, God, I pray that as we're gathered in this unprecedented and unusual way right now, but a way that you are completely involved in, uh, and as we've now sung to you and worshiped you, I pray that you might speak to us by the anointing and illumination of your Holy Spirit, and that, Lord, you would touch each of our hearts and minds as we engage your truth, your revelation, your word to us now. Lord, we're going to look at just one verse today, 
but boy, is it potent because it comes from you and it could dramatically change the way many of us live out our faith and our lives before you and this fallen world of ours. So speak to us now. Do something in us, I pray, in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. Well, I, I don't know if you have noticed this or not, and I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Christians actually have their own language, their own way of speaking and talking that the outside world, our postmodern culture, uh, knows very little of or has very little understanding of. Wikipedia, the online encyclopedia, has actually devoted an entire article to this. True, you can look it up yourself. The article is called Christianese, kind of like Chinese or Japanese, Christianese. And look at what they say. This is really kind of revealing. They say in the article, Christianese refers to terms and jargon used within many branches and denominations of Christianity as a functional system of religious terminology. It is characterized by the use in everyday conversation of certain words, theological terms, and catchphrases in ways that may only be comprehensible within the context of Christian belief. <laughs> Do you get what they're saying? We're weird. <clears throat> That's what they're saying. And so what kind of words or catchphrases are we talking about? Here, here's some examples of words you and I use that they out there, and even many may, maybe in here, have no idea what they mean. Anointed. Backsliding, the blood, born again. How about this one? Courting, uh, discipleship, the word. Even our use of brother and sister is different than the world might use it. And, 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 and many other words that have become literally our own language, words that only we know <clears throat> what they mean, it's Christian ease. And so as we come to our third 316 passage in this series, we're going to get to a word that rightly so, I mean really rightly so, Christians use regularly, but it's a word that's not used by our culture. It's a word that I'm not even sure we know what we mean when we use it because we seem to be all over the map, but it's a very, very important and powerful word. <clears throat> so let me read the passage for you. It's found in 1 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16, and see if you can pick up on the word that I am talking about here. Hint, it's going to be in bold yellow, so you won't miss it, as I do quite often. But here's the passage, and here's the word. 1 Timothy three sixteen. It says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I want you to focus for right now, and we're going to get to these other six things describing Jesus in a minute. I want you to focus on that word godliness. That's what this passage is all about. Trust me. It's about godliness as it is linked to Jesus, who is being referenced with six phrases here that we're going to get to in just a very short minute. Now, the phrase here, first, that great is the mystery of godliness, is worth parking in front of for just a few minutes because we need to understand and forever cement in our understanding what this word godly or godliness means. Because Christians use it often, but I'm not sure that we understand what we mean when we use it. 
This phrase itself, great is the mystery of godliness, is an interesting phrase. This is the only occurrence of it in all of the New Testament. Great is the mystery of godliness. But watch this. Each individual word, great, mystery, and godliness, are each used a lot of times in the New Testament. So when we put it together, we should have a pretty good idea on what we mean by this. So let's break it down and look at those three words very briefly. First, the word great. I love it. It's the Greek word mega, where we get megaphone from or mega church from. The word simply means huge, big, loud, towering. So it's telling us in this context here that whatever is coming next in this phrase is worth dialing, dialing into. It's big. It's huge. Great. And what does it say next? Great is the mystery. Now, here's what you need to understand about the word mystery in the Bible. When you and I use the word mystery today, we use it to describe something that's not known. Women are a mystery or, you know, the stars are a mystery or something like that. The Bible uses it almost in the opposite way. When the Bible uses the word mystery, it's using it in the sense of something that was not known historically, but now that God has shown up on the scene, it is revealed. So this word mystery, it's kind of like reading a mystery novel where you get through 40 chapters and getting toward the end of the book and all of a sudden one chapter you have that aha moment where it all comes together and you know who did it. That's why the Bible uses the word mystery. It's the revelation of something that wasn't previously known that now is known. So great, mega, is the mystery of what? Godliness our godliness. That's the context of 1 Timothy chapter 3, our godliness. This whole chapter is concerned with you and me. In verses 1 through 7, it talks about the character of elders. In verses 8 through 13, it talks about the character of deacons. And then in verses 14 to 16, the last three verses of this chapter here, it's talking about how to conduct oneself as part of God's church, as a follower of Jesus. And so the entire chapter is concerned with the character and conduct of God's people wrapped up here with this word godliness. And so maybe now you can start to begin to understand what the word godliness is getting after. It's being like God, hence the word godly, but like God in our conduct and in our character. It's the Greek word eusebia, and it literally means, watch this, a manner of life that flows from inward faith. So let's be clear. Godliness is different from faith. Faith leads to godliness. It's faith that you have an inward disposition of your heart, your trust in God through Jesus, that results in a character or a conduct that people can see, that you can see, and that's the godliness, and it's not just morality, it's more encompassing than that. It's your entire lifestyle, your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors, the things that make up your character that results from your faith in God. And so I love how one expert Bible commentator says it, probably the foremost authority alive on 1 Timothy, it says it in his commentary, he says, godliness is the integration of faith 
and behavior. So it's when your inward faith meets your external behavior, your, even your thoughts and feelings. I like it. He says it's Christian existence that flows from Christ's existence. <laughs> In short, godliness is what comes out of you and me as we have an inward faith. It's what is seen based on our unseen trust in God. That's godliness. And if you're still unsure, if you're still scratching your head at all as to what precisely we're getting at with godliness, you're going to get it as we go along because the primary point of our 316 passage here is that godliness can only be found in Jesus. Godliness can only be found in Jesus. In fact, it's truly rich what is being laid out here because when you look closely at this passage, as it ties our godliness with Jesus, it is telling us, and this is our main point today, it's the only thing I really want you to remember, that Jesus is both the source as well as the pattern of our godliness. That's what's going on here. Jesus is both the source and the pattern of our godliness. This is really important to dial into. We're going to explore very powerfully here in just a minute, these six statements that describe Jesus, and we're going to see how it's tied to our godliness. But what you don't want to miss before we do that is how these six statements do two things. They first describe this Jesus we believe in so that as we connect rightly with him, we know who we're connecting with. We're not just connecting to an idea or air or something silly like that. We're, we're connecting to an actual person who now rules from the heavenlies, Jesus, the son of God, God incarnate. We'll explore that in a second here. That becomes the source of any internal life change that we have in our character, our godliness, but then a second thing is going on here that you don't want to miss, and that is that simultaneously these six things also become a pattern for how we need to function and live as well. So Jesus is the example of how we need to live in our godliness. He's also the source, the impetus, the power for it. Let me show you what I mean. I want you to notice first in this passage here, the six things being laid out concerning this Jesus we follow, six things that we must recognize and believe about him in order to have a right view of him, one that will allow us to become more godly in our character. And so let me walk you briefly through these six things here and explain what they are. And you're going to see the beauty of this Jesus we believe in. First, it says he who was revealed in the flesh. He was revealed in the flesh. This refers to what theologians call the incarnation, which is simply Latin for, for existing in the flesh or coming into the flesh. That word revealed is the Greek word phanero that simply means something is made known, something is made manifest, something is made visible. And in this context here, it assumes that this he, Jesus, was preexistent because he's now been revealed in the body or in the flesh. And so it's talking about a preexistent eternal being, Jesus, the Son of God, becoming a human being, God becoming a man. That's this Jesus that we follow. And then notice a second description here. It says that he was then vindicated in the spirit. Vindicated in the spirit. What does that mean? That word vindicated means to be declared right, to be judged rightly, to be proven innocent. 
And simply put, it was the Holy Spirit's job when Jesus was on this earth to affirm and validate who he is, the perfect eternal son of God, come to take away our sin. And so obviously, the greatest vindication that the Spirit could do would be the resurrection of Jesus, right? Because it proved who he said he was and all the things that he taught to be true. And isn't it interesting that in Romans 8, 11, it says the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So there it is. The Spirit was operative in Jesus' life and in our hearts and minds, proving that everything from his pure teachings to his perfect life to his atonement for our sin to his resurrection from the dead are all true. He was vindicated in those things that he said and taught and even in his work by the Holy Spirit. So he's the incarnate God come to this world. He is vindicated in all he did by the Spirit. I love this next one. He was seen by the angels. (laughs) He was seen by the angels. This is rich. It simply means that when Jesus became a human being and walked this earth, all of heaven was watching and even involved in what was going on 2,000 years ago. Remember that word mega? Great is the mystery of godliness, which is Jesus. And it's great because it was a, of such cosmic proportions never before seen in the history of the known universe. God was up to something on planet Earth and all of his angels were involved. And we see glimpses of this in Matthew 4, verse 11. Jesus is ministered to by an angel when he's being tempted in the desert. In Luke 22, verse 43, we see him again being ministered to in the garden by an angel. And so we get this idea that there are angels all around, all of heaven, glued to Jesus here on earth. Heaven took notice of what the Son of God was doing. That'll be important for us in just a minute here. And then notice a fourth description of Jesus. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was proclaimed among the nations. That word nations is the Greek word ethnos, where we get our English word ethnicity from. And it simply means all people groups, all ethnic groups, everybody on planet Earth. And don't miss this. This will be important when we apply it to us in just a minute. It's referring to Jesus's universal appeal, his universal call to all human beings to come back to himself. As the Lord of this world, as the Lord and Savior of our lives, he's proclaimed to all nations. So he's the incarnate son of God. He's vindicated in all he did. He is seen by angels. He's proclaimed among the nations. And now let's wrap this up. He's believed on in the world. (laughs) He's believed on in the world. It's how you come into a right relationship with him. You have to believe, accept, trust, lean into him. And again, notice the universal scope, the world. It's the Greek word cosmos, where we get our English word cosmology from, and it just means everybody. (laughs) It's John 17, verse 21, where Jesus prayed that, that, that all people would come to know him through the faithfulness and love of his disciples. And this is what is after there, that we would all believe. And then finally, a great capstone to this, Jesus was taken up in glory. Obviously referring to his ascension, it's the same word used in Acts chapter one, verse two, where it says Jesus was taken up or ascended into heaven. Why? To rule and reign in the spiritual realm until he returns. 
And so let's add this all up. This is very important for where we're going to go to in a minute. As I say quite often, we're going to accelerate in just a second. Add it up. From Jesus' incarnation revealed in the flesh to his perfection, atonement, and resurrection vindicated by the Spirit to all of heaven watching, seen by the angels, to his lordship and universal appeal proclaimed among the nations, to faith which appropriates all of this believed on in the world, to his ascension into heaven. These are the things about Jesus that you and I believe, the common confession that allow him to be the source of any life change that we might have. And the reason that this is so important, and many of you know this, but man, is this important for us to realize in our unprecedented times, is that we have many people in our nation and in the world today that want the godliness that you and I have access to, but they're going about it in ways in which they're not going to get it. Let me repeat that. We live in a country today in which, make no mistake, people are less religious, but they're still interested in spiritual things. The vast majority of people today would say that they are spiritual, that they have a spiritual side to them. They might even be interested in a form of godliness, whatever that might be, because they want to be like that which they believe in. And yet the problem is, is that we have this country today that wants to consider themselves spiritual. It's even into spirituality, but they're trying to attain it without a right focus on Jesus. I'm not picking on these groups. They're self-proclaimed in what they believe. Hollywood uh, is certainly into Scientology and even some of them into a mystical form of Judaism called Kabbalah. And, and so again, they, they want to have a spirituality, but it has very little to do with Jesus. And what the Bible says is, is that you're never going to have the godliness that your soul longs for going down that road. And then you have academicians uh, today in the, in the ivory towers of academia, and, and most of them are what we call deists. Uh, I was rubbing shoulders with one a few years ago from Cambridge University, and he was telling me that most of the professors at Cambridge and Oxford and even here in America, are, are, they're not atheists. They actually believe in God. They believe in what we call deism, in, in which they believe that God existed and somehow you know, uh, made all this happen, but he sort of stepped back from all of it and is just letting everything take its course. He never gets involved in this world of ours. It's called deism. And again, none of that has anything to do with Jesus because it's hard to fit Jesus into that. So they want a spirituality, even a godliness, but they're not going to get very far because of the focus they have. The cultural elites in our day and age are into New Age spirituality, Eastern mysticism. Politicians are into some form of spirituality. I call it liberal Christianity or water-endowed Christianity. You see, the Bible nailed this years ago. Don't miss this. The Bible predicted back then and today all this would happen. In 2 Timothy 3.5, it says this. There'll be those who hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. So there's people today that are thirsty for what you and I have access to in Jesus. They're thirsty for this Jesus who could actually change their character and their very lives, but they're, they're not focusing on him, or if they are, they're not doing it in the right way. And yet you and I know better. We have this right view, this common confession that we know is critical if we're ever going to connect with the Lord in such a way that is life-changing and character-forming. 
It's these things about Jesus that we believe that make all the difference. They are tied to our godliness because they're the source of our godliness. The incarnate, vindicated, seen, proclaimed, believed upon, and taken up Jesus. That's where godliness is found. And you and I need to be very serious about this in our spirituality. Otherwise, we're just playing games like the rest of culture. And we need to help them realize the cogency and the power of this. Now, we're not done yet, not by a long shot, because this is only half of the equation of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Now, don't miss this. It is where a lot of people stop. A lot of Christians today would agree with everything I said up to this point, everything the Bible says up to this point, that, that, that Jesus is the source of any of our spirituality and our godliness because of all the things we've looked at, the incarnation, the, the atonement, the resurrection, as universal appeal, all of those things, belief and faith. And they stop here. They just say, well, Jesus is the answer. He's the only way. But when it comes to godliness, you might remember that we noted earlier that this passage is talking about a godliness in which Jesus is not just the source, but he's also the example, the pattern for how you and I become more godly. So to say that I just believe in Jesus and that he's the source of my godliness is a good start. That's half the equation. But if you don't go further, and say, he now is the pattern for how I'm going to, to conduct myself, how I am going to think and behave and feel, then you'll never become godly. This is the mystery of godliness. And you're saying, well, what's this about? Let me show you. But when you look closely at this 316 passage before us, you're gonna notice that the six things laid out concerning Jesus, this is rich, also become six things that you and I can emulate and pursue in our godliness as well. In other words, there are some clear action points for you and me contained in this description of Jesus, things that we can be and pattern our lives after in what we see and experience in him. And so as we strive to become more like him in these ways, we can actually become more godly. So in our time remaining, let's get real practical and confine ourselves to the parameters of this one verse, this mystery of godliness laid out here. And I want you to notice some action points for our godliness, things that we can pattern after as we look to and follow Jesus's life and ministry. And I just wanna warn you before I start here, as I walk through these things, I'm gonna use myself as an example for how these might work. Not because I am more godly than you, because I don't really think that I am, but because I'm in the battle with you. I'm a human being just like you who has been struggling for 40 years to become more the man God wants me to be. And here is part of the way that we do this, a huge significant way in becoming more like Jesus. So here we go, action points. The first action point to being godly according to the pattern set by Jesus is to be self-revealing. You're going to like this. Be self-revealing. Simply put, the incarnate Jesus came to reveal himself and the Godhead to us. And as you and I pursue the mystery of godliness and following him, we likewise pursue a self-revealing life to God and to those around us. 
So in a very real way, we become incarnate as well by lovingly focusing on those around us and relating to them and God with a level of self-revealing authenticity, which becomes the opposite of hiding. And if you're missing this, let me be really clear. Jesus did not hide in heaven but decided to come to this earth to save us. And that's the mystery of godliness. And part of the way you and I emulate that, because we're not the incarnate son of God, is that we then live a life that is self-revealing as well and does not hide in who we really are, but reveals that to those around us. And in so doing, we become more godly. And some of you are saying right now, well, what is it that I reveal? It's a really easy answer. You're gonna love this everything. (laughs) You live a life that is an open book. Remember our vision as a church, get God, get real, and get out there. And you live a life that is an open book, just like Jesus did, and who he was. And we live that before others, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as we all say. And in so doing, watch God use that, believe it or not, in you becoming more the man or woman he wants you to be more godly. This past week, I did a, uh, a, a, a webinar, I guess that's what they call it, with, with Larry Crabb, our, our friend, and some of you dialed into it, and we just had a spiritual discussion for about an hour on what happens when we feel far from God and how to deal with that. And he started off this webinar by referencing something that we didn't really talk much about, and I'm kind of glad, in which he talked about a conversation he and I had had a couple weeks ago where I apologized to him because I wasn't really engaged in the conversation. And, uh, and what happened was, is that, you know, whenever Larry and I talk, and we talk fairly regularly, I, I got to gear up for that conversation. He, he's a friend, he's a mentor, but he's really probing, and he's really intense, and really deep, and, and we're talking about very, you know, soul-ish things, and so it's almost like lifting weights, you know, I, I, I got to prepare myself for the conversation with Larry. And a couple weeks ago, I was sitting in my office, and, and I was just really bummed, I don't mind saying I was bummed about all of this and missing everybody and I'm lonely and, 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 and I'm struggling in my spirit, especially that day. And so I called Larry. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but when I called him, I realized that I was actually so bummed that I wanted to hear his voice and talk to him, but I really didn't want to talk about what was going on in my soul. I know none of you can relate to that, but that was a day that I was having where I just, and I didn't realize I should have gotten on the phone with him, that I, I didn't want to talk about it. I just wanted to talk. And Larry doesn't do chit-chat very well, so he kept trying to probe, and I just kept putting you know, roadblock after roadblock and just keeping the conversation superficial and shallow, and I, I do that so well when I want to. And, and I did that for about 20 minutes, and finally I just said, well, I'm going to go, and thanks for the talk, and we, and we hung up. And I realized later that you know, he, he's probably colossally disappointed in that because you know, we didn't really have much of a conversation. So when I called him the next week, I just said, hey, i got to apologize to you. I, I said, I, I, just, I was not on, I was not there, I was having a bad day, I didn't want to talk about it. And what he said next was amazing. He said, Jamie, that's what I love about you. <laughs> I said, you love that about me? <laughs> he said, I love the fact that you're just honest about who you are. And he said, I can take your shallowness. I can take it when you don't want to talk. We all get like that, some of us even more often than not. And he said, and that's okay, because that was you in that moment. And I want you. You see, that's what godliness is, guys. Godliness is that even when you're looking bad, Larry defines it this way, godliness is looking bad in the presence of love. 
So even when you're looking bad, even when you're, you're struggling, if you're being honest and self-revealing about it, that's what God wants from us in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships, in our church relationships. The first step in patterning ourselves after Jesus is to be self-revealing. It's okay. As Colossians would say, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. But what's the in you part in any given moment? Godliness says, I'm not afraid. Uh, more quickly, notice a second thing that we do to pattern ourselves after Jesus. And this is going to freak some of you out. You're not going to like this word, but we have to be men and women about this. We be blameless. We be blameless. So as Jesus was vindicated in the spirit, declared innocent and perfect and true, and as we pursue this mystery of godliness and following him, here's the caveat, as best we can, we live a blameless and set-apart life, vindicated in our own life and godliness as well. And the key is, as best we can. So like self-revealing, we just strive every day to live as innocent and pure and set apart, which is what holiness is, like Jesus did, in our character and our conduct. And it's simply a battle that you and I have each day that, again, if you're like me and you're engaged in the battle, some days you're going to win, some days you're going to lose, but it's three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward, two steps back. So just this week, I was having a conversation with another pastor, my friend Tyler Johnson from the Redemption uh, Church, and we were talking about all that's going on here and just connecting a little bit, and he said, how are you doing with all this? And I was actually having a better day than when I was shallow with Larry, and so I said, well, I'm doing pretty good. I said, but I got to tell you, Tyler, I, I said, I have a battle every day, and I know every one of you are going to relate to this battle, but I said, my, my battle is I, I vacillate in trying to make sense of all of this between what I'd call godly rationalism and, and, and fleshly cynicism. <laughs> Godly rationalism and fleshly cynicism. If I watch Fox News, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be far on this side sometimes. I, I get very cynical and da-da-da-da, and, and what's the government doing, da-da-da. And, and yet when I read my Bible and I, and I talk to God and, and I get quiet before him, I, I start to get more of a patience and a peace and a, a godly rationalism. And, and Tyler said, boy, I, I got that same struggle. I, I think we're all struggling with that. <laughs> That rationalism versus cynicism, that's a battle in our spirit. What's going on there, guys? It's a battle for godliness. And that's just one small example. Where every day there are things vying for our mental energy, our hearts, the way we behave. And you got a choice, the flesh or the spirit. The rational side of you that is biblical and cogent and right. Or that cynical fleshly side of you. And again, part of the battle of godliness is to be vindicated in the spirit as best we can to live a blameless and set-apart life. And so we are, we are self-revealing, we are blameless. And then notice a third one. I love this one. And this is going to freak some of you out, but man, this is so good. And this will be the key to some of our godliness. Be watched. Be watched. So here's the deal with this one. Just as Jesus, remember this, was seen by angels... And we noted that he was watched by all of heaven. We, as we pursue this mystery of godliness and following him, likewise live a life in such a way as we are ones who we know that we are watched by God and even heaven the same. In other words, we know 
that there is a spiritual realm, Ephesians chapter 6, that has principalities and powers that's going on all around us and that we're engaged in that. Remember that novel, This Present Darkness? And we're engaged in all of that in our own lives. And so we don't live just by what we see. We live by what we do not see and we know that we're being watched. So we live as ones who are watched. And all I can tell you is that when I start to think like this, and I do quite regularly, man, does it affect my behavior? How could it not? How could it not, when I feel like losing it with someone around me, affect my behavior to know that God is watching (laughs) and that his angels are watching and that all of heaven is rooting for me in that moment? How could it not, when I feel like sinning, You can fill in the gaps on that or falling into temptation. How could it not affect me when I remember at that moment that I am one who has watched? Years ago, this will date me, the police, uh, headed up by Sting, wrote a song that some of you might remember called Every Breath You Take. Still not sure what the song is about, but I remember the first time I heard it, I thought of God. Because the song goes like this, every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. If that's like guy doing that to a girl, that's kind of creepy. But if it's God doing it to us, that's an incredibly beautiful thing. So part of our godliness in following Jesus is we live self-revealed. We live blameless. We lived as those who are watched. And then notice a fourth thing. We be embracive. This is going to be a game changer. We be embracive. I almost use the word inclusive, but that's too politically correct today. And really the word is embracive. This one is good. Just as Jesus was proclaimed among the nations, declaring his lordship and his offer of salvation to any and all, so we too, as we pursue this mystery of godliness and following him, we too embrace all people as ones who have redemptive potential and ones that Jesus came to save. And this idea of being embracive of all nations, of all people, of anybody that God brings into our path, is part of our godliness. And again, I don't know about you, but I struggle with this one. There's just people I don't like. There's people who bother me. Even when I get to know them, they bother me and all these things. And and God says part of my godliness is to be like Jesus and embrace them. Even if they're in rebellion to God as ones who have redemptive potential, as ones that he came to save, as ones who are being proclaimed to all nations, this Jesus that we follow. And here's the power of this. I told you this years ago. I haven't used this illustration for years, and, and yet it's so good. It's not my own. I got this from somewhere. I, I just steal really well, and I, I got this somewhere years ago. Somebody once said, a well-known psychologist, that the greatest fear of the human heart is not what we would think. The greatest fear of the human heart is not a fear of high places or a fear of enclosed places or a fear of snakes and spiders or things like that, though we all might have those fears. No, he said that, that the greatest fear of the human heart is to be fully known and not loved. So the fear that almost all human beings have, and you have it and I have it, is that somebody would actually get to know us. That you really get to know me. I, I say quite often that you know people that want to spend time with me, like have a lunch with me, that it's a very anticlimactic experience. I'm not what you think I am. Talk to my wife. And that's my fear speaking, because I fear that when people really get to know me, they might not like me. They might not want to stay with me. And that's the power of godliness and being embracive, is that we get a chance to show the world what Jesus is like. Because think about it. Jesus knows everything about you. 
He knows everything about you, Neil. He knows everything about you, Rusty. He knows everything about you, Rick. He knows everything about you, Kevin. He, he knows you, and he embraces you. He, he loves you. He, he, he came for you. And you and I now get a chance in our godliness to be that, to be Jesus for other people, to love them at their worst and embrace them. It's part of our godliness. We're self-revealing, we're blameless, we're watched, we're embraceive. And then notice, fifthly, we're trustworthy. <laughs> Just as Jesus was believed on in the world, asking people to trust him and lean on him, so we, as we pursue the mystery of godliness and following him, become trustworthy ourselves, and we become ones that others can believe and lean on in times of need. Our word is true, and our word is our bond. We're trustworthy. Very quick, funny story. My daughter, Abby, who's now 28, when she was a little girl, uh, she was promised a canoe ride by her grandpa, and he never delivered. Small thing. Uh, she was promised rock climbing by me, and for lots of different reasons, I never delivered. A joke now in the adulthood with me and my daughter is she said, yeah, and I lost out on that canoe ride and that rock climbing. She brings it up probably once every quarter, if not half year. It's a big joke in our family. Dad promised this, grandpa promised this, and they never delivered. I probably should take her rock climbing one of these days because even though we use it as a joke, it, it's fascinating, and all of you will get this, that she remembers that. I don't think she needs therapy over it. Uh, it it's, she's thicker than that, and, and, and it's a joke. But, but she remembers it, as all of us do whenever somebody doesn't come through with a promise. Now, why is that important? Because godliness gets a chance to reverse that. Godliness says that if you make a promise, just like God when he makes a promise, you keep it as best you can. And part of becoming like Jesus is to become trustworthy. And then lastly, we be ready. This one will make sense to you. We be ready. This one's not complicated. Jesus was taken up into glory, ascended into heaven. We're waiting for his return. And we, as we anticipate his return, we make sure, like in Matthew 24 and 25, that we are ready with our lamps lit for his return. So part of godliness is to live in light and with readiness to his return. Here's what I want you to see, because we're going to wrap this up right now. We're out, we're out of time here. These six action points, what hit me this week about this, this idea of being self-revealing, being blameless, being watched, being embraced, being trustworthy, being ready, these six things are things that you can do this week, this day, today, while you're social distancing at home. These are like COVID-19 friendly forms or action points of godliness. They really are. These are things that you can do as you interact on Zoom as you text somebody, as you make a phone call, as you interact with your family, and talking to somebody this week and say, man, it's getting tense with the family. Well, let's turn up the godliness factor, and let's start to be more self-revealing and embraceive and trustworthy. These things that we experience in this Son of God, Jesus, whom we follow and is the source of our godliness that we now get to emulate. These are COVID-19-friendly steps toward godliness. So let's wrap it up and go back to where we started. Christians have their own language. Christianese, we talk a different tune or sing a different tune. Godly is one of the things that we talk about a lot, but now you know what it means. It's talking about conduct or character that flows from faith. It's Christian existence based on Christ's existence. He is the source and the pattern of our godliness and any hope we have to be godly. 
He's the source through our right belief and interaction and faith in him. And he's the pattern in six ways that are tried and true. And all I know is that I can't wait to get back with you and to see how God continues his character-shaping forming of your soul as you become more the godly man or woman he wants you to be. You can do this as you follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this one verse that who would have thought contains so much for us today. And we're just scratching the surface. And so, Lord, as we think about this common confession, this mystery now revealed that is so great called godliness, I pray that we keep our sights laser beam focused on our Savior and Lord Jesus. That, Lord, we would give a lot of thought even this week to this idea of the incarnation, the vindication of his life seen by the angels, <laughs> proclaimed to the nations, believed on in the world, and then taken up in glory. And Father, I pray we would not be afraid to pattern our lives after this, that we would be self-revealing type of people, that, Lord, we would be embraceive, ready, that we would be authentic with those around us, and that, Lord, we would be trustworthy. So, God, work in our souls. Make us more the godly men and women you want us to be, and we'll deflect all glory and praise to you. Thanks for this time. We look forward to being together very soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.